The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So we remain standing. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross to die for our sins for rising from the grave to defeat death, for ascending to the right hand of God the Father to reign over us. Be with us now as we gather in your presence. Form us and shape us as your people, that you might be glorified on earth as in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. On this Sunday, 19 years ago, Holy Trinity Anglican Church gathered for worship for the very first time. For 11 years, we met in the chapel at St. David's School, just a few miles away, and then on this same Sunday in 2015, we began worshiping here in our new building and permanent home. God has been so good to us. I learned this week something that you may know, I'm guessing you don't. Did you know that the 19th anniversary of a marriage is celebrated as the bronze anniversary? It's pretty exciting. You know, bronze is not the flashiest of precious metals, but it's the chosen symbol for 19 years because in addition to its simple elegance, it is durable and tough. So when you've made it 19 years in a marriage or as a church community, You have something to celebrate because your union has lasted. It's durable, it's tough. I'm so grateful to be part of our bronze anniversary as a church. Well, as we celebrate this anniversary, it is right for us to ask a simple but very important question. What exactly does it mean for us to be the church? Church is one of those words that means different things to different people. For some, it's a building. For others, it's what you do on Sunday mornings. For some, it's a social club or an invisible heavenly reality or any gathering of Christian people or something you know you should be a part of but have never really enjoyed. What's the church? What's the purpose of the church? What does it mean to be a part of the church? Well, these are the questions we're going to consider over the next five weeks as we begin our 20th year of life together. And we're going to 
answer these questions by taking a look at key sections of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians was almost certainly written late in Paul's life. He was likely under house arrest in Rome when he wrote it, where he would soon be killed. Paul had started the church in Ephesus during a very brief visit in either 50 or 52 AD. A year later, he went back and he stayed that time for two and a half years teaching, preaching, discipling, and establishing local leaders who took over care of the church when he left. By the time Paul wrote this letter, it was several years later and more than a decade since he had started the church in Ephesus. He knew the people there, but no longer well. They were children he had never met, new converts he had only heard about, friends who had died. And this makes Paul's letter to the Ephesians a little different from his other letters. It's less personal. He doesn't jump into their disputes or mention friends by name. He simply teaches and he encourages. And this is a gift because it reads like it could have been written to almost any church, including ours. And in this letter, Paul gives one of the most profound reflections on the nature of the church that's ever been written. Paul refers to the church for the first time in Ephesians at the end of our reading for this morning. It's one of nine uses of the term ecclesia in the letter, and that's the word that we translate as church. Ecclesia is, is a compound word that means basically those who have been called out and gathered together. It was used in ancient Greek literature to describe a political assembly, like a rally or a caucus. It was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the assembled people of Israel. So in most of our English Old Testaments, it's translated simply as assembly. In keeping with this tradition, throughout most of Paul's earlier letters, he uses ecclesia to refer to the people of God as they assembled in God's presence to worship, to receive teaching, and to care for one another. In his later letters, however, Paul begins to use the term as a way of talking about the people of God more generally, not just when they gather for worship, but as they share fellowship in Jesus Christ across time and space. And that's how he tends to use the term here in Ephesians. But we have to remember, even when using the term in this more general way, that the church is never a static ideal or a merely heavenly concept for Paul. It's active. Church is not a society in which you hold a membership. It's what happens when God's people gather in God's presence for worship, training, praying, and caring for each other. So with all that in mind, I would love for you to turn, if you're not there already, to page 976 in those red Bibles <laughs> so that you can follow along as we begin to explore this letter to the Ephesians together. Now, you may have noticed, as Susan was reading our passage to us, you may have noticed that it's made up of an incredibly long run-on sentence in verses 15 to 21. And that long sentence, it builds up to a climax in a much shorter, punchier sentence in verses 22 to 23. This is where Paul mentions the church for the first time. And he exclaims, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
What Paul is saying is that God is uniquely present in the church through Jesus. And because of this, church is the only place we can experience the fullness of God. That is a bold statement. And it forces us to take a closer look at what Paul has to say in this chapter. So in the first half of chapter one, before our reading, Paul talks an awful lot about how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan for creation. I want you to notice all of the words that had to do with planning or intent beginning back at verse three. Listen to this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Notice all of the language of planning. He chose us. He predestined us. The purpose of his will. Paul refers to God's will twice more in verses 9 and 11 and to God's purpose twice more in those same verses. He returns to this idea of predestination in verse 11 and he talks about God's plan in verse 10. Paul is marveling at God's intent in, create, in creating the universe and everything that's in it. What is his intent? Well, Paul tells us in verses 9 to 10 where he explains what he calls the mystery of God's will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's plan from the beginning was to bring all of creation together in Jesus Christ to reconcile this broken, sinful world, sinful world to himself through the broken, sinless body of Jesus. So that he and we and the world around us and the universe that spins in the heavens can live in glorious harmony forever. That is God's purpose. In verse 15, Paul shifts tack. And he explains how he prays for the Ephesians in light of these incredible truths. This is what he asks for in verse 17 and following, that the, Lord God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul loves run-on sentences. He wants the Ephesians to understand what they've been brought into as a result of putting their trust in Jesus Christ. The hope the plan, the mystery, the purpose 
that Paul prays we will grasp is not just the good news of personal salvation. It is the enfolding of everything in the universe into the one Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as I explained already, this run-on sentence of a prayer leads up to verses 22 to 23 where Paul writes, and he, God, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The heart of God's plan, the key to its execution, and the home of God on earth is the church. It's here. It's here in the regular gathering of God's people for worship, teaching, prayer, and sharing life that God is uniquely and powerfully present in this world. It's not in the beauty of a sunset or on a mountaintop or at the beach in the morning that God is especially present. It is among his gathered people. Well, in keeping with this, notice how fleshly Paul's metaphors are in this climactic sentence. He's been talking about the mystery of God's eternal will, the riches of his glorious inheritance, the immeasurable greatness of his power, but now he drops down into physical reality by talking about feet, a head, and a body. All things, Paul says, are now under the feet of the risen Christ. In other words, whether you believe in him or not, whether you are a person, a plant, or even a planet, you are under the sovereign reign of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has conquered death and the grave. He has put down every spiritual power opposed to God. He has stomped down all opposition. That's what it means to be under the feet of Jesus. But there's a second metaphor here. God the Father has given Jesus as head over all things to the church. All of creation is under Jesus' Jesus's feet, but not every creature submits to his reign. Most of the world continues in rebellion, and creation continues under the curse of the fall, except for the one place where Jesus is head, where his sovereignty is recognized, and his will is supreme, and that is the church. In this context, the language of headship has to do with Jesus' authority in the church. Jesus inspires, rules, guides, and sustains. He's the source of our life together. He's the center of our existence. Because of this, the church has a special place in God's plan for creation as the place where Jesus exercises his authority and establishes his reign here on earth. Well, how? That's where the third metaphor comes in, by making us, the church, his body. As we submit to Jesus, he fills us with himself by his Holy Spirit. Paul mentions earlier in verse 13. He transforms us, making us more and more like him, and so we become his body here on earth. He shows himself to the world by revealing his power, 
goodness, glory, and grace through the life of his people. We are the place where Christ is present to the world because we are his body. And we tend to think of church as something that we choose. And it's fair enough in the sense that there are plenty of local congregations you could choose to be part of, but it's not exactly true. We don't choose a church. Rather, Jesus has chosen us and he's put us in his church. And that was his plan all along. And being part of the church means being part of a local community of Christians who gather regularly for worship, teaching, training, prayer, and sharing life. We are under his feet, he is our head, we are his body. I care passionately about the local church and about this local church in particular because I am convinced that this is the place where God makes his home on earth. This is the place where he reveals his power, his goodness, his grace, and his glory. This is the place where redemption happens because it's here that people are introduced to Jesus, reconciled to him, and brought into his one body. So as I said at the outset, what Paul is arguing here in this first chapter is God is uniquely present in the church through Jesus. And because of this, church is the one place we can experience the fullness of God. Last month, an important new book came out. It's called The Great De-Churching. It shares the results of a major study conducted over the last few years examining church going in America. And the results confirm what many of us have feared, which is that we are currently in the middle of the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. Over the last 25 years, roughly 40 million adult Americans have left the church. They have simply stopped gathering for worship with God's people. Now that accounts for 16% of the adult population of the United States. Now many reasons have been given as to why people leave the church. And the authors of the great de-churching do a good job helping us to see the most common reasons. Interestingly, only a small minority of those who leave church say that they have left the faith. More often than not, they leave because they don't feel like they fit, or life is too busy, or church has gotten way too political. And most think that they can keep believing Christianity without being part of Christ's church. According to the New Testament, however, that's an impossibility. To be in Christ is to be part of his church. Although it's never mentioned in the book or addressed in the study on which the book is based, my guess is that one thing all of these people who left church have in common is that they didn't realize what they were leaving. They thought they were leaving a voluntary organization or a building or a political movement or a particular group of especially difficult people, which happens. <laughs> but you know, when they stopped gathering with God's people, they were cutting themselves off from the body of Christ. 
They weren't just leaving the church, they were beginning a process of leaving Jesus. Now I know that there are many so-called churches that are really just social clubs or fronts for a political party. And to leave one of these is not to be cut off from Jesus, but to not have a church home, to not have a local body where you gather for worship, teaching, prayer, sharing life, and caring for each other, that is to be cut off from Jesus. I think we need to be honest, and we need to recognize that we have an entirely inadequate understanding of who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. We think of our faith as something personal, individual, and largely intellectual. And we think of the church as a good, optional extra where our individual faith is going to be strengthened in contact with other people. The New Testament, however, describes our faith as corporate, shared, and covering every area of our lives from intellect to action. And at the center of it all is the church. We must regain a biblical understanding of what it means to be the church. Now, having said all of that, I know how hard it is to imagine that this is the place and these are the people with whom God has chosen to make his home on earth. I love you all, and I think very highly of you, but God's chosen dwelling, really? It's hard to imagine, but it's true. This is what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 1. God has given us the gift of his son. He's filled us with him by his Holy Spirit, and he has drawn us together as his body, the place where his fullness dwells. Over these next five weeks, it's my prayer that God may give us all a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that we, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, might know the hope to which he's called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe and have been drawn into his body, the church. Let's pray. Our Lord God, would you give us a vision for the church that is consistent with your plan for the purpose of all history? That we, as we are united by faith in Christ and in the worship of him, might be drawn into the purpose and plan for all creation, for all time. Lord, would you give us a vision for our life together that matches yours and that brings Christ to the world. We pray this in his name. Amen.